usually what we do is we break this up into three segments. So we first start talking about public markets, uh, observations there, any challenges. Uh, we usually have a few asset managers on the line, either some traders or equity research analysts. Uh, I don't, I see a few asset managers on today. I don't know if we have anybody really that does a lot of trading or equity research. And then the middle piece, which I think we'd love to spend a majority of our time today will be on kind of the small business and startup piece of this. And then we'll go into kind of the alternative investing environment. Um, Pam specifically will have some very interesting insight, I think, on the uh, small business and startup side of things. Uh, but is, does anybody want to kick off on the public market side? I don't know, Stacia or Bill, if you guys want to talk about anything you guys have done in the last couple of days, given the uptick that's happened. Well, the big thing has been obviously we've been taking the time to reallocate portfolios. I mean, this, when this kind of stuff happens, you know, things go askew. So obviously you're checking in with clients at this point, making sure they're still where they need to be based on their risk tolerance. I mean, I know that's the basics of investing long-term. I mean, most of our clients obviously are going to be those long-term investors, not so much uh, the day trader types. So um, it's been a good opportunity to do that. Just make sure that they are uh, paying attention to the right sectors, looking at more opportunities, I think, on the equity side than on the fixed income side at this point. But then again, I mean, you got to make sure that the risk tolerance max, max matches what the client needs. So, Yeah, and I saw some interesting... Um interviews with Mohammed Alarian uh, on Bloomberg, just talking about yes. you know, one of the best things you can do right now is just follow the Fed. Um, why go against the grain, basically, you know, see where the, see where the Fed and where the government's going to be investing. Those might be safer moves. Um, I don't know what else to uh, highlight there, but uh, there's some other concepts too around uh, corporate debt and whether that's really a good idea or not, just given that there's not much yield in anything and, um, I don't know if you guys have looked at that at all. Yeah, so like some of the, in fact, I'm getting ready to be on a call for that next week, but there might be some opportunity actually in some high yield, but then again, see that's higher risk. You got to be careful with who you're putting into that type of thing. Um, on the corporate side, now that, you know, we're kind of doing some things that are unprecedented with the way the Fed is now merging with the Treasury, which makes that very curious you know i mean we got to look at what's happening here in the big scheme of things and they're going to be bolstering corporate debt and then did you guys hear that boeing wasn't going to take any of the bailout money did you guys hear that too uh no i heard that they weren't that gonna, I heard that, sorry I, i'm sorry i just thought i heard that they weren't going to give um any equity out so i didn't hear okay. that they weren't going to take any of the um, bailout money, it's just in what form. Okay, I don't know I how they can manage that. Detail on that one. Yeah, this is Bill. I was, uh, I heard Steve Mnuchin saying yesterday that, that Boeing's kind of decided to be on their own for right now. So, um, my tip that is they're not gonna seek any help from the government. Interesting. I mean, that's uh, yeah. why everyone saw the movement on Friday downward, right? Yes, quite a Big bit. Time. Mm -hmm. We don't have Ron on by chance, do we? Who covers Boeing as an analyst? 
Damn, his, uh, his input would be really interesting on this. Yeah, he would know. I'm just curious because I know that one of the caveats, right, is that if these guys take bailout money, they can't do buybacks, right? right. Did they ever settle on whether or not they can use this to pay dividends? I have not seen anything on that. I don't know if anybody else has. Joe, I don't know if you've seen anything on that. Seems like it, uh, dividends are still fair game, but uh, buybacks just get uh, such a bad, it's such a bad name for the baby in the background. Hmm. Yeah, it's just, and they're, and they're obviously it's like capital allocation, capital redistribution to shareholders. If if you're a finance person, that's how you view it. But if you're a if you're not, you view it as you know the CEO trying to pump up the stock price so that they can hit their bonus target. Absolutely. And then it, 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 it is a very mixed thing because the people who are relying on dividends for income, you know, I mean, I, I guess there is a ripple effect with all of this, but it's, I mixed emotions on it myself personally, but I've been trying to understand what exactly was in the bill. And I, I'm a political science junkie, so I just haven't had a chance to really read all of it because I know how many pages it is, but it's changed since the time that, you know, since the first stuff got released. So I haven't seen the final the Business Insider article published 20 hours ago prohibits layoffs, buybacks, and dividends. Okay. All right. All right. And just yeah, so that I mean, a lot of people are trying to not increase dividends. Well, they could increase if they wanted to, but. Yeah, I haven't read that far through the article yet. They're only. No, I guess what I was saying is they, they can't introduce increased dividends or, or is it just like is it prohibiting dividends i guess what I, I think to read it. it has nothing to do with uh, the bailout right so they should be able to do that oh so if they receive the bailout monies they're not going to be able to use this funding to back dividends essentially oh is that what you're saying yeah yeah i hear you now that makes sense Any other observations on the public side? I know, Joe, you had some interesting trades going on. Um, how'd some of those pan out? Um, so, so, I mean, like there were a couple calls that I, like the square call that I made a, I don't know, two, a week and a half ago. Maybe that was, was that last week or the weekend before, but at any rate, um, yeah, I mean, that went well. And then I, I also, unfortunately, uh, had made had made a call on uh, Papa John's, which, I didn't end up uh, actually executing. It was just like really lightly traded. So, um, but beyond that, yeah, I just like been really actively monitoring basically the S and P and then how it relates to the Russell 2000, um, mm -hmm. and kind of keeping an eye on if there are how that how those two things diverge in light of the bill and how the kind of bailout money will flow through the economy from top to bottom in terms of small businesses versus large businesses. So been actively trading that and I don't know it's just it's just a hard time to trade given the volatility yeah any, any thoughts on uh, if we got lower to go I know some people are thinking another 10% below the lows at which uh, I think that we're at 19 or high 19s any other thoughts on that well I think we're starting we're starting to roll into earnings um, so like you, you had like Nike report really strong earnings I think relative to their guidance and 
the impact that they showed in their China segment was actually not too bad. So that's like obviously a consumer cyclical. So to see them do okay, I mean, obviously they were an early reporter of earnings, so it only reflected a small percentage of the total um, impact of Corona. But, um, you know, that was kind of a bright side moment. And then we had um, that kind of rose a few consumer boats um, and stocks like Lululemon, which then reported, you know, an okay not surprisingly bad quarter and but their stock did not perform the same way nike did so it's 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 hard to trade but i think the overall news is that uh earnings will be so far the early guys are not too bad um so you might have to look a quarter out from now so looking at q2 and to see the full impact um which i think to your point shane could result in another leg down but the, the open question in my mind is do we have a modest recovery right now, and then it legs down ten percent, so that we're so that net net we're sort of where we are now? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure. Are you, this is Pam. Are you hearing anything on some of the public companies? Because I heard this week that you know TJ Maxx is not getting any credit ex- extended to them at all, right? So TJ Maxx, for instance, said, I mean, it impacted my husband's business immensely. So they didn't even they didn't even open up their online stores. They're not opening, I don't think, even for another week. So they shut down not only the stores, but they shut down their online stores. Right? Wow. Uh, some of the factoring, so they're not their their factoring lines have completely cleaned up at TJ Maxx. Well, I mean, that's something to examine uh, for sure across the board, right? Is like how many people's factoring lines have been tapped or shut down. Uh, and what ripple effect will that have on a lot of these businesses? Uh, I think Nike has been resilient just because of the strength of the brand and the desire for the product. Yeah, I'm just putting it on this. And, uh, hey Zeke. and um, you know, really, there's probably a few others that fall into that category. But, you know, Pam, as we were talking yesterday, too, there's a, a lot of um, back offices and support. Oh yeah, I'm over that. Yeah. I'm all over that one. <laughs> so, a lot of these companies rely on on foreign markets and, and places like India to basically run their businesses. And Eric, you could probably talk to this too at UL what you guys are doing um, throughout the Asian region. But uh, Pam's got some interesting insight on the India part too. But you know that'll all have an impact too on a lot of these operations. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, there are two different schools of thought from our business perspective. One, our our Chinese customers have kind of, uh, you know, take a, taken a big hit. Some of them just aren't going to recover. The small to mid-sized players that were highly leveraged are probably going to go out of business. So there's going to be a lot of consolidation and people picking up share over there. So that market's going to be in, well, <clears throat> it's going to be in disarray for a while. I'll just leave it at that. And then the other piece of it that we're looking at that's a little concerning is the demand driven out of North America. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last. <clears throat> Obviously, I don't think I'm an epidemiologist or anything like that. So um, we're crossing our fingers on a quicker economic recovery, but <clears throat> you never know, right? And uh, what China did to contain it was significantly more aggressive than what we're doing almost anywhere. So well, I have some Chinese nationals that work for me and their their feeling is it's going to get really bad here before it gets good again, <clears throat> which from a business management perspective means that we're concerned about the demand picking back up. 
probably before the end of Q2 in any significant way. In fact, right now we're forecasting Q3 to be off uh, revenue-wise in the 10 to 15% range for a lot of the consumer products and things. So it's, you know, we don't, we don't know the answers yet. We're just, uh, we're seeing that the suppliers are hurting uh, and uh, a lot of the demand drivers are unknowns at this point. Yeah, and, and to that point, I mean, one thing we were talking about, uh, I was talking to a couple guys uh, just trading the other day, what will be interesting to dissect, at least on the public side, is what is the weighting of business across regions, right? You know, where, where is U.S. heavy, where is China heavy, where is India heavy and rest of the world type of thing? Um, because that's really going to dictate a lot of the, the ripple effect and the impact that will have. I, I think I've heard the same thing, EJ, that, uh, you know, the U.S. is just so far behind in, in containment. I think like what I experienced yesterday at the beach is evidence of that. Um, literally thousands of people on the boardwalk and I'm like, oh my God, I can't even distance myself more than like four feet at a time. Um, so, I mean, we have an arrogance and a stubbornness here that I think will actually cause us to linger a lot more. I think Gobi, my colleague also mentioned that, um, you know, it turns out that weather doesn't have much of an impact, at least heat, maybe it's more around sunlight. So there's still a lot of unknowns, whether this goes dormant. Uh, but I do think there's consensus from a lot of the um, health advocates that I've, that I've at least seen interviewed that, you know, this will last a couple of seasons, of course, bring its head back next year as well. So um, I know we're just not taking the right steps. I think Lou might be able to join in later. One of my buddies. Um, so he's one of the head of a uh, uh, head of um, psychology at Columbia medical. Um, he probably has some valuable insight both on kind of mental health state of things, but also what's actually going on in the healthcare units throughout New York City and kind of how those rank in comparison to others across the nation. Um, I, from what I've heard from NYU, Columbia, uh, and Zeke chime in here because I think your buddy is, is also a physician there. Sounds like it's very much a battlefield and there's a lot of challenges. Yeah, I wrote to, I wrote to my... Um, I supported one of the congresswomen in town and I wrote to them because, you know, WeWorks is going to be a disaster, right? I mean, WeWorks was already a disaster, but they would make the ability to set up some of these portable hospitals quite simple, right? They're already partitioned. They're already single rooms. There's a kitchen on every floor. So, you know, that could be some containment in those hospitals areas from, you know, if they're all empty, I don't know one person that I know in a WeWorks that's paying their rent right now. And WeWorks won't allow you not to pay, right? You have to have a credit card in that system to be able to pay. So everybody that I know put in a ability and cleared out the funds so when they direct were pulling on the first of the month, they moved their money out so there was no money to pull into the WeWorks on the first day of the month. Wow. Yeah, if they weren't in bad they have shape. A hundred, they have, they're the largest real estate provider in Manhattan right now. They surpassed J.P. Morgan with real estate in terms of the amount of um, space they have, you know, but there could be a transition there and they have them in Chicago and they have them in L.A. and they have them in London. Right. So, you know, there, there, you know, there could be an opportunity for them to do good and possibly save themselves. But I don't know if anybody's looked at um, WeWorks from that perspective of what they've been doing, because it's pretty scary. I mean, and these aren't businesses. These, my business has taken a hit, but these are businesses that are not, you know, I mean, who knows who's going to take a hit. But if you think about the customer profile of a WeWorks person, right, 
mostly small businesses, right? Very small businesses. Now, Bank of America's got space in them. You know, Deutsche Bank put all their innovation downtown, but they're ghost towns. They're empty. And they've only got one person working in each building right now. I think co-working and spaces in general have uh, pretty much been shattered from this. Uh, yeah. But I do think on the on the upswing of this, it's already been talking. I think there's going to be a lot of firms that will only go to that, uh, just given that they don't need the real estate footprint as much anymore. I think people are going to get more accustomed to working from home. Um, you know, those that need to get out uh, can actually go and work in a co-working space. So I probably can see that taking off a bit, uh, but I, I do see the reliance on office heavy real estate uh, might go down uh, based on some of the conversations I'm having with some of my colleagues. I think it'll be good for smart building type of real estate for big open office spaces. They're going to be challenged, right? If you can't tell somebody that you have HEPA cleaned air and it's not full of toxins and VOCs and stuff, people are going to be less likely to occupy that space. It's going to be a topic now. Yep. We don't have Michael Orso on, do we, by chance? If not, I'll try to get uh, him or his father on. His father is uh, the head of capital markets at Newmark, used to be CEO of Kenner Fitzgerald Commercial Real Estate. As you can imagine, they're seeing a lot of uh, leases fall through. The cash flows are diminishing like you wouldn't believe. Uh, it's a bit of a bloodbath on the real estate side, as you can imagine, and that's going to ripple across the country quite a bit. Uh, but maybe we can get some insight on that down the road. Um, if there's no other perspective on the public side of things, maybe we can go into the small business side. And Pam, Joe, Alex, uh, anyone else, I guess Kelly, uh, your team there, I think would be great to just kind of talk about like what you're seeing. Pam's had some interesting run-ins just given where she is with her business. So I'll kind of let her chat a bit. Uh, but if, in case there's anything else on the public side, go ahead and bring that up. Cool. All right, Pam. Hi, guys. Um, nice to meet everyone. And Shane, thanks for um, including me today. Um, so I have a, my business is a small business focused on uh, machine learning and document extraction out of, you know, core documents. So um, highly regulated documents, so syndicated loans and credit agreements, and we work in trade finance. And, but what we do is we extract um, unstructured data and we turn that into a digital asset um, for upstream and downstream processing. Um, my company has, um, prior to this happening, I had some you know, unusual investors um, that participated. Um, so my, my capital raising was always a struggle. So um, you know, full transparency, this has sent me over the edge um, from that standpoint. So I, I signed the asset for the benefit of the creditors. Um, on March 5th. And I did that as I was seeing, um, you know, it wasn't so bad on March 5th, but there was no idea to understand what was gonna happen. So probably the hardest decision I've made in my life. My company's been going for 10 years, but, um, and we've been self-funding it, but that, between that and then the impact that it's had, I've been in this ecosystem of what's happening to my company but as a result of that, for any of the entrepreneurs on the phone, you also always have a big personal impact, right? Financially. 
Um, so I'm living in a system right now with these two things going on in parallel. And as I was saying to Shane yesterday, it, it, it's fascinating because I've had to call for relief personally. And as a result of uh, my filing, a lot of stuff got put back on me. So anything that I personally secured wound up back in my plate. Um, at the time that there was no, no compensation coming in, um, my husband's in the retail wholesale business. And while he has tons of goods to sell, there's no one to sell it to. So the bottom flew out on both of our businesses at the same time. Um, but what I was sharing with Shane yesterday was that when you're calling up these institutions, so call, you know, everyone from the car companies to the credit card companies to the mortgage company. Um, I've been on the phone with everybody and they're, they're just giving relief. They're not asking for documentation. They're not asking for evidence. They're not asking for anything. So Monday, Tuesday, I called up on my cars and I said, listen, I've got some hardship. My business has gone into this process for liquidation. My husband's business is tough, right? I need some help. Acura, Jeep, five, not even a five minute conversation. No problem, four months. No documentation, no paperwork, not even showing them anything. But um, for instance, Capital One on one of the cards, a week ago, they were like kind of, you know, oh well, you know, not very cooperative is the way I'll put it politely, right? I call them back on Monday, no problem, four months. Now, what I was sharing with Shane yesterday from the credit side of this, right? Because I deal with financial institutions. I've been in the back office my whole life. Um, and part of the application that I've had, which is, which is an awesome product, by the way, and we really hope to reconstitute under these circumstances, I, but I just wasn't going to be able to make it through. So I made a decision that the only way that I could possibly get the value of the asset that we've sent millions building, which has been used by Bank of America, Wells Fargo, I mean, all these places, right, was to get in front of it. Right. Had I not gotten into the system when I did, I have other people that I know that got into the system two weeks later. They're not getting anything. I mean, I got it in, I filed, I got my court papers. The other part of that was it allowed my staff to get in on unemployment. Now, remember, this was March 5th. One of my employees didn't file for unemployment when I assigned the asset. Last week, she tried. She got, her, she got a letter that says, based on your social security number, you can only apply for unemployment during these two hours on this specific day. So the queue to file from an individual perspective, it, 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 it's quite, it's fascinating, right? So you have that piece, you have the credit piece, right? And I don't, I mean, all of you guys are on Wall Street, so think about what we know about the back offices of Wall Street, right? They are not adapted to go restructure. One of my employees called about her mortgage. She did not have to file one piece of paperwork to get her mortgage restructured, right? But think about our supply chain here from a financial services perspective, right? Typically, if you go and you want hardship on a loan, right? You're giving documentation, you're giving tax returns, you're giving evidence, right? And where is that back office done on a loan? That was Shane's point about India. India is the loan servicing back office for about 80% of the, of the loan servicing market, both bank and non-bank lending. 
Where are they? Right? And this isn't high value work. I mean, these people were sent home, but not all of them were able to go home and get a computer and get an internet and all that type of stuff. And so there's a supply chain here in this credit and in this process that, you know, I've written some notes. So you've got the small business piece, you've got the credit piece. And then if you think about the credit piece and you think about all these people relieving these debts. Now, one important piece on that, you know, that example. So the only bank that didn't, that I spoke to that didn't have a plan or was very uncooperative was Citibank. Citibank's like, no thanks, you know, you're, you, you deal with it. But the other banks, even American Express, who seems to be the worst on the planet, you typically, they're not giving three or four months, but they're giving you a month and you need to call back before the end of your statement closing on the next month. And this is a small business American Express card, right? So I've seen it from the mortgage companies. I've seen it from the credit card companies. I've seen it from um, just basic lenders, right? However, I don't think many people are calling them up and saying, how are you dealing with this in the back office, right? So all of us that know the back office of a financial institution, so much of the work that's outsourced into India, right? And there were redundancies in India, but the redundancies in India were different regions of India. Right? Just like, you know, Amazon has a center in Seattle, but they've got a backup in Arizona. So in India, they've got their backup centers, but they're all shut down. Right? And I've searched, I've looked at, you know, I've watched CNBC, I've watched everything to say, who is writing about the back office of India right now for all these financial institutions? I can't find a thing on what's happening there. Um, but there's also a bias. I think there's a bias that's being built in. And while we've all feared, because I sit in the natural language, machine learning, AI world, right? One of the things that we've feared the most is, you know, how does that type of technology interfere with bias, right? And so on this credit side, just understand, up until this happened in March, and this was one of the things with my business as well, I hadn't missed a payment, I hadn't missed, I, was, I, I had a load of debt, of convertible debt from people, but I hadn't missed any of my business payments, so I didn't owe vendors money. Right. So in my case, from the vendors or from the cards or from my mortgage or for anything, I wasn't delinquent on anything. So I went through those calls and they happened. Now, one of my employees who had a different kind of hardship from from a divorce and my employees have been on minimum wage for about um, 12 months now. So they face different hardship. But one of my employees who had more hardship for a combination of reasons, she, when she went in, they weren't quite as accommodating on that. So they would change her interest rate, which was at, you know, on a credit card from, you know, whatever it was, 21, 22%. So they gave her a 14% interest rate. So they adjusted the interest rate, but they didn't adjust the payments like they did for me. So they gave me carte blanche, right? For basically four months, I eliminated almost every payment that I have in my personal life within 48 hours this week. None of those restructures have any documentation any email back from them, anything that says what's going to happen or how that repayment's going to work. It's just calls back in four months and see how you're doing. So I have no idea what, you know, if you think about the back office, if you think about the credit card systems as an example, right? The back office credit card systems are programmed, right? Because if you're in a 60 day window, they won't report you to the credit bureau. Once you pass and you go into that 90 day window, 
there's an automatic trigger in the credit systems that would flag the credit, the credit bureaus, right? So I think from our supply chain, I told Shane yesterday, I think this is gonna put the credit bureaus right out of business. Because there's gonna be no way that they're gonna be able to understand how that's happening. So you got a back office issue, you've got a credit issue, you've got them giving hardship opportunities to certain people, but not others. And I'm not sure what bias they're using because in my example with one of my employees, she's got the exact same zip code as I do. She lives down the street. So it's not a zip code thing, right? So the trickle effect of all of these things, and then if you think about who restructures the loan, who's the call center, who are doing those things, it's in India. <laughs> and so I just was sharing with Shane, I said, I, I've been documenting this and watching it but there is a back-end effect here, right? Tons of opportunity from an innovation perspective, from a tech perspective, right? Because this is going to change the catalyst of many of the issues that smaller vendors have had with the cloud and security. You know, you don't hear anybody banging on about cyber right now, right? Um, but it's gonna be an issue, right? And where are the people helping the system and where are the people gonna be frauding the system, right? So, you know, I know that was a load throwing out on the table uh, and, and I hope I sequenced it correctly, but I just think it has an impact to the people, it's impact to the institutions. There's a huge impact from India. There's gonna be, I think, a complete blow out of credit bureaus, the Exofaxes of the world. I don't think they'll ever recover from this because there's going to be no way with the amount of people that they're doing this with, right? There's no way that they're gonna be able to ever reconcile, right, these things because I guarantee you, in 90 days, if I don't pay something, you know, something's going to hit a credit bureau. It will, because I don't think they've figured out the back end of that. That's a really interesting observation. And I, I, there's probably a couple of ways. One, there's opportunity that's arising from this, but I also don't know what ripple effects it has downstream uh, in terms of uh, further tanking our system. Any thoughts of that? I'll add something, right? Because if you think about student loan debt and you think about credit card debt, that was the single biggest roast in the credit system, right? Yep. You know, student debt surpassed credit card debt. My student, my daughter's student loan, no problem, no interest. She's not in school right now. So I don't know if they've done that across the board, but when we called the student loan company, you know, she's not in school right now. I mean, she's doing online student, but interest waived. So if you think about the amount of credit cards and student loans, just use that bucket for a second, forget everything else, right? And there are no prepayment terms on any of that. So when this, when we get to the other side of this, I, 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 it just is, it's very, there's a, there's a fear factor in there that says, what happens on the other side of this when everything starts to spin back up, yep. right? Now, obviously for me, I mean, I'm, you know, I've got some hardship right now, but I haven't had hardship. And, you know, and my goal when I speak to them is I want to repay this. But, you know, like I said, they didn't ask me for one piece of paperwork. I told them I lost my job. They didn't ask for anything. I told them my company's issues, they didn't ask for anything. Less than four minutes. I eliminated almost every bill. Verizon, no cell phone bill. Verizon TV, no cable bill, all gone. In 48 hours, I did that. Wow. Yeah, I'm getting people offering those things unsolicited. Like I'm fine, I'm still employed, thanks. 
you're saying that, but what I'm saying, I think your name is Eric. I saw your name come up there, right? You know, that's where the fraud factor comes in, right? right? Because you'd probably qualify. You know, I'm living in a hardship and said, so this is how I want to be, you know, what are my repayment terms? They don't even want to talk to me about what those repayment terms are. Yeah, I think what you're asking, Shane, and I'm curious about, and I don't know the answer to this, is it seems like somebody's paying for this. If you're not paying, somebody else's cash flow is getting tapped into every month to pay that bill uh, or, or the returns that are expected from whatever financial institutions behind those bills, uh, those are going to suffer. How does that impact the markets? And, and do they have enough reserves to ride through several months of this? I don't understand how that works. Well, you know, the people that aren't calling, there's going to be people that won't call. You know, I've been in front of it. I was in front. The day this happened to my company, I started calling people and then I just kept calling. Right. But, you know, not everyone that's going to face this hardship is going to be calling, trying to negotiate. They're just not going to pay. Right. 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 What's interesting though, uh, Eric. And and one other important fact. They didn't cut my spending on any of those things. What do you mean by that? Like your limits? Wow. No, they did. I, I said, am I able to, you know, because I, I was willing to sacrifice, right? I mean, I, obviously I'm not charging on it because from a responsibility right. perspective, I'm not trying to bigger, dig a bigger hole. But when I'm calling these people now, I'm asking a lot of questions for the purposes of this conversation, right? There is going to be opportunity. There's going to be risk, both things, right? But in all cases on those cards, they did not stop my, they did not decrease my spending limit or tell me the card was blocked from spending. Wow. And Pam, you know this, like data in most of these companies, so Eric, even UL, I'm sure Verizon and all this stuff, it's so fucked up. It's oh my so gosh. bad. That's what I do for, you know, I finally, you know, my company was built around going back to the original documents and looking at contracts and finding special clauses and doing that's what my company does. Right. So, and I've been in the back office technology of wall street since I was 19 years old. Right. And I'm telling you guys from that technology perspective and what's back there and what they've got to do to, to slow. Right. I mean, Amazon web services where my data center was, you know what they said to me, they said, we'll give you a repeat on your data center, but you're going to keep getting the past due bills and you're going to keep getting the, the termination notice that we're shutting your data center off but we're not gonna shut it off. Even Amazon, new, newer company, most of be tech, right? They can go in and change the flag so my, my product doesn't get shut down, but they cannot go change the emails that are being dispersed to me and they cannot change the billing process. So they said, don't worry when you keep getting the emails, we're not gonna shut you down, right? So the, even the billing system at Amazon Web Services and what they're gonna do to accommodate their clients are not reconciling. So my, my gut is, Eric, is that there might be somebody who's paying for this. The reality is they're probably just relying on whatever dollars of bailout they get and taking a 30 cents on a dollar, 70 cents on a dollar, whatever comes from these bills, wipe out, whatever you want to call it, and then they'll be made somewhat whole and they'll just have to live through it. I doubt they have enough data and, and, and tie through through most of these systems to ever reconcile what's going on right now, especially if there's no paper trail. If it's all verbal conversation, this is something else Pam was talking about yesterday. You know, there's, unless they have really good speech to text to document this, which they don't, uh, for the most part, these are just lost conversations and data that's going nowhere. That's interesting. 
I, I just uh, I have a feeling that that second leg down that you're talking about is going to come from the unknowns and this type of uh, uh, pausing structure and, and leases and things like that. You know, what's going to happen in three months when everybody's like, wow, we're out of we're out of cash. Right. Yeah, and we, we brought this question up a couple of weeks ago on this call about, you know, are we looking at a 2008 on top of what's going on here with some bit of a financial collapse. Um, I, I talked to Matt Eager on the excuse to run uh, derivatives at ICAP. The difference he said, can somebody, everybody mute that's not on? Um, the difference he said this time around is that there's just not as much leverage in the system because there were stops put in place uh, and the banks are a little more cognizant on that. So there's probably less of a domino effect. However, these are core business lines that, you know, again, it looks at, I guess we have to look at the weighting of, you know, what does the credit portfolio or some of these debt portfolios look like for some of these financial institutions and what type of ripple effect or impact it can have on the overall cash flows or the organization. And that's to me the big unknown because we don't know how much fallout there will be. Yeah, it's something to watch for sure. Well, and the other thing in my Amazon example, right? If you think about, you know, you know, the, the, a lot of the big companies haven't moved to the Azure's or the uh, the AWS's for any major, right? So it's companies like mine, you know, it's small businesses, medium-sized businesses, right, that are running in these clouds, right? So, you know, you got your WeWorks impact where no one's paying their rent. You got your data, you, you know, your data center impact, right? I mean, Amazon's never probably in the AWS world in terms of when they their business is gone to do that. So now they're forgiving, they're saying, fine. I mean, you know, my monthly cost, just from a small bit, my monthly cost to Amazon were on eight grand, right, for, for, from the environments. So they waived um, February, March, you know, now they've given me a shorter time window. So they've given me through, um, through April. That's all I ask for though, right? But, you know, again, it's this, it's the supply, it's a different level. So we, keep, we keep hearing about supply chain from a goods perspective, right? We're not looking at the supply chain from, you know, cloud services. And I'm not talking online retailing. I'm talking about people running, you know, analytics or trading or, you know, different healthcare. I mean, think about all the, you know, smaller businesses that build their applications or building them in the cloud for distribution, right? Small companies. So small companies that, that work at, at, at WeWorks, right? They use Amazon or they use Azure, and this is how they're distributing their product. Right? If those guys are starting to do it, and now we know that their billing system won't accommodate it, you know, it, what is that ripple effect from an AWS perspective? I mean, we're hearing all the great stuff of their prime and everybody's ordering from Amazon, right? But Amazon's got a whole nother big business over there. Microsoft's got a whole nother big business over there. Um, on the cloud stuff, if people stop paying their cloud bills, what happens there? And um, for Amazon, I think that drives most of their profitability, right? It Which, does. again, is probably not being factored into the stock price right now. And that also has been a, a recurring question here on this is, you know, just how much time and window is priced into some of these stocks of them being down. But I don't know how much of uh, Amazon is priced in where AWS clients and customers just aren't paying. Right. I mean, I think from a cloud perspective, though, the other side of this is going to be the biggest surge we've seen. 
it's going to be the accelerator for the clouds for all businesses, right? This process is going to eliminate those fears because everybody's at home, all their side, you know, people working from home, how you get into the banking things, right? And the highly regulated industries. So I think the cloud thing could be a temporary piece. And I think it'll surge on the other side of this because, you know, one of my biggest sales objections always was selling into financial services. Oh no, it's not safe. Can't do it. Right. So even, you know, the Bank of America, the well, they're still installing certain a lot of applications on prem, but I, you know, it'll have a very positive impact for the cloud in the post world. But the question is, what happens in this time frame? And since the time frame isn't defined, right? What's the impact there before you can get the hockey stick out? And just shifting over, um, Alex, you're on the line still, right? Yes, I am. So Alex is at an interesting venture fund uh, that does a lot of insure tech uh, investments, a lot of fintech. Uh, what opportunities are you seeing? Are, and you guys are you guys thinking about a lot of these issues that are being raised here? Um, and what opportunities are you seeing to kind of uh, potentially take advantage of that after this is all done over the next five years or so? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks. Uh, first of all, Shane, thanks for having us and, and organizing this. Uh, I would say I'm. I would agree with a lot of the comments made so far. Um, I think it's um, what I what I would say is it's, it's been a little bit of a double-edged sword, and that I think a lot of the companies realize that this is a, a risky period. They don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, they're really looking to, you know, cut out any additional expenses that they can to weather out the storm. Uh, however, I, I think a lot of them do realize they need to roll with the punches uh, and use this as an opportunity. Uh, to creatively get in front of new business. Uh, so for an example, I talked with a company yesterday um, that is, uh, it's a technology company that provides different telehealth uh, uh, scheduling assistance and technology. Hey, quite. Sorry about that. I have the dogs. <laughs> uh, some different technology solutions to help with scheduling, uh, to help establish different telemedicine or telehealth services for dentist practices. Uh, and what he's doing, uh, he said that it's actually been a, a great, a few weeks for him because he's providing a 30 to 60 day free trial um, to all the different groups, all the different dentist practices and pitching it as, Hey guys, um, use this as a push to get into the digital transformation more quickly uh, and use this as a way to kind of try this out in an opportunistic time right now. Um, it's free for 30 to 60 days. And he's had a lot of success over the last few weeks doing that. Um, and I think we've also seen, I'll give another example here. Uh, a company in the gig economy space, um, you know, a lot of the freelance workers, uh, you know, this group's usually uh, hit hardest or hit first, I would say, uh, in times like this, um, but also wanted to rebound uh, back quickest, I would say. Um, so for them, uh, what this group has done is provided a, a bunch of different resources to freelancers and some of the micro communities within the freelance uh, community. So some of the, you know, writing groups or um, you know, the freelance uh, engineering groups or uh, some other micro communities and getting in front of them, um, getting them to talk with each other uh, and sending out different resources for them to cope with times like this, uh, to find different groups that are hiring in times like this uh, and to really just kind of ease out or to, um, you know, kind of smooth out and, and ride out uh, and weather this storm. Uh, so I think, you know, for startups, uh, I would say, um, you know, it's, it's, I would say a lot of them are, are concerned. There's a lot of things that they're doing and um, um, uh, across like risk aversion and, and just cutting costs. 
to weather this out, but I, I think a lot of them are realizing that uh, there are some opportunities here on the digital side to, to reach new customers in uh, different interesting ways. Interesting, Alex. So one of our portfolio companies, Thinkster, which does AI education for K through eight, one, you know, just in the last 13 days or so, saw the conversion rates double without doing anything. Um, but now they've also decided to do, you know, also as an impact strategy, hey, let's close out the school year. Let's give people free access to our math tutoring um, so people at least can finish out developing their critical thinking skills But then the hopes that you know, they'll stay on the platform and talk to another company that we're going to partner with called Caribou um, that does arts and reading for, I think, kind of uh, up to seven-year-olds. But same concept, let's offer this for free, getting way more conversion. So some of these digital strategies are definitely working. And I just got to be in the right lines of business. And Joe, I don't know if on your end, if you guys are actively pulling the trigger or have you guys slowed down in terms of new deals at Studio? Um, but is, do you see a lot of uh, appetite for, for taking on some of these um, companies? Yeah, we, we've made a couple commitments in the last um, month, uh, two new commitments. Um, and I mean, I think the, the fact of the matter is, like cyclically speaking, 2008 was a fantastic year for uh, venture funds of that vintage. Um, I think a couple things happened, like, one is that valuations reset from pu public to private. Uh, and so the entry point in 2008, and maybe maybe today, it's still, still TBD, but maybe today, the entry point for venture uh, is maybe a little bit more sane than it has been in the last three years. Um, so there's a little sanity check going on. And I've seen this like in specific examples where um, founder, like a founder came to me two months ago and was like, hey, we're gonna raise 3 million on 12, and then she just came back to me and she was like, we're going to raise 1 million on seven. Um, and so like, that's just a tangible example of somebody just kind of like, like somebody said, rolling with the punches, resetting their expectations and also resetting their valuation. So, you know, the difference of entering at seven versus entering at 12 is, is a pretty big one. Uh, you know, all things considered, if exits are all the same out in the future, uh, big question mark there, but if, 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 if exits are all the same, but entry points are different, it can be an attractive time to be deploying capital. The other, the other lens is that, you know, if you have dry powder, which, which we do have some, um, you know, there are funds that are much, much bigger than ours that, are, you know, kind of have to deploy the, have to deploy the capital. Um, and so if they see great entrepreneurs, like, you have to put money to work. And so I think they'll continue, um, especially the larger funds. You know, obviously, I think there's like kind of a, everyone just took a punch. And so we're still kind of like a little delirious from the punch and trying to figure out like, how bad it is, how long it lasts, et cetera. But as we get more clarity on that, I think it, I think it snaps back pretty quickly. Um, and then in terms of like duress, I have about 20 portfolio companies. Um, you know, the ones that are well capitalized are being really smart with their capital and thinking about just extending their runway. Um, and, you know, I think it makes, makes them consider some hard decisions about like, what do we really need to spend on? So that's, that can also be like, in my opinion, I think that could be a good thing just to sort of put people to a critical test about like where they're spending their money because especially after you receive like, you know, three or $5 million in a venture round, it can be an easy time to sort of make bad decisions about product, about roadmap, about hiring, et cetera. Um, and we've seen that time and time again where, um, you know, people are sort of less discriminant within the short period of time after a funding versus the time right before 
before funding. So people are super innovative and super scrappy right before they get funded, um, and then less so after. So, and then just to circle back to the point about the cloud, um, I mean, most of the businesses we invest in are technology and internet companies, and you know, the cloud is is like oxygen to them. So, like, I think. You know, I've seen this, like I've seen founders in our portfolio stop paying themselves before they stop paying their Amazon bill. So I think that's a little bit of a counterpoint um, to what we heard earlier, but um, you know, that's, that's also a luxury that only some people have. No, that's interesting. And I, I think we touched on this on Wednesday. I don't know if you're able to join, but um, a lot of what you yeah, said to you about the, it really depends where you are in the funding cycle of your fund, right? Because like you said, some have to keep deploying some have the luxury of uh, standing still. Some will greatly benefit by uh, just launching this year. If they just raised new money and haven't deployed yet, those tend to be the best outperformers. And you know, one thing that I, I brought up, I don't know if there's enough data on this yet. Uh, I didn't ask it in our venture survey that we did, but uh, you know, at some point it might be better for a lot of these VCs to just redeem and uh, shut these companies down and take whatever cash is left in the bank. I just don't know if they're getting LP pressure on that. And I don't know if, uh, if Mike Lear is on, but I'm curious to hear that from the LP standpoint at some point here, um, what type of, uh, what should be done? I mean, it does ruin the VC's reputation, uh, but at the end of the day, it's better to kind of pull the bandaid off than kind of die a slow death sometimes too. Yeah, Shane, I mean, I think that's, uh, that is an opportunity, but it is very final. Um, it's very final for your reputation. It's very final for the company. It's very final for uh, a decision. And and like, I'm I'm personally like just as you know, Shane, monitoring this situation really closely from a health standpoint. And so I talked to some government officials this week and things like that. And yeah, I mean it's it's definitely bad and probably going to get worse. But I'm still not convinced that this is going to absolutely destroy the U.S. economy. Um, and also, like, it's important to, I think, dis, like, disaggregate the economy from the stock market. The stock market reacts really volatilely, as we've just evidenced, uh, to the downside and to the upside um, because of trading and algo and all this other stuff. But, um, and there are definitely opportunities to benefit there. But the reality is, like, you know, two months ago, our economy was just humming. And, and so, like, with that in mind, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that most recessions uh, – you know, economic downturns cause joblessness and cause unemployment. But in this case, unemployment is causing an economic downturn. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a very rare and new thing because like our economy is suffering because people aren't working rather than people not working because our economy is suffering. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yeah. yep. with that in mind, with that inverse dynamic in mind, I think if we do, if we do rebound as an economy and not just a stock market, um, I think the rebound could be faster than like a two than like a 2008 where there was systematic shock and systematic like unhealth that led to you know a systematic downturn in the economy. But that's still TBD. Yep. But Judy or uh, Kelly, you guys have any input? Um, so this is Judy, and so I'll kind of take it from a macro to a micro. So from an insurance industry perspective, what we're really watching is uh, all, so many of the businesses are suffering because either none of their insurance is covering any of the losses. And the two major places have been event cancellation, 
and business interruption. And I don't know the statistics, but I would guess that 90% of the companies have an exclusion in there for viruses. So, it, so what we're starting to see is a lot of litigation against the insurance companies to figure out a way to get coverage. So the first litigation I saw was Native American Casino, uh, Sue's, AIG, and Lloyd's. So it'll be very interesting to see what the litigation is gonna look like and what the government is gonna do. And I compartmentalize what the government is gonna do in two separate ways. The first way is there's already um, the insurance industry and the government talking about should we have for future pandemics uh, an insurance like, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the terrorism and triage, where the government is the one that's actually funding the coverage. So I think we're gonna probably see something on a future basis to help out later on. The real question is what happens today if everybody from a small business to a large business can't get coverage, there's gonna be a lot more business failures than just what we're talking about. And I just wonder if the government as part of the package at some point, I haven't been reading it, is gonna say insurance industry, you're gonna to have to step up to the plate. If they require the insurance industry to step up to the plate, I'm gonna suggest there's probably enough, enough premiums in the world to cover all of that. So it's just gonna be an interesting dynamic to see how that plays out. From a micro perspective, uh, we're in a kind of interesting space. So um, we have a company that provides risk management for trustees and family offices. So our client base are essentially the wealthy, right? Their exposure issues are very different than the rest of the world, but they've got very tricky decisions to make. So I'm not gonna get into the weeds on that, but as a result, we're actually seeing an uptick in our business. People, when we've been talking about all the fine tuning of their coverages and their exposures and how they have to manage the risk, there was a lot of, yeah, no, this is really interesting, really love the spot, but then they get distracted because they have other issues. Well, that distraction is starting to go away. So as a pretty small company, we're starting to see an uptick. We also, given where we're at, um, this is my second startup, and my first startup that we ultimately did sell to an insurance company, we made a lot of commitments that put us in a very difficult situation coming 2008. So when we started Nomadics, we made the decision to make sure we had so little expense so that we didn't have to make any decisions out of fear we could make it out of plenty. Well, that's a double-edged sword, right? We're growing slower than I would like. We have to fund the MVP, and we've been in the capital raise, um, I don't know, I guess since last summer, trying to get somebody to help fund the MVP. Uh, so what we're starting to see right now, um, and I'm interested in some of the other discussions because I've kind of held back on some of the really good discussions we've been having, not trying to understand when is the right time to raise our hand again with the capital providers. But on the flip side, we're getting a lot of reach out from insurance brokers. So we've got three different conversations going on right now 
with insurance brokers saying, we don't have this expertise, we hear what you want to do, how should we work together? I think there's some questions that although it hasn't been raised, you know, would you like to be acquired, that kind of thing. So we're kind of in a interesting position of growing. We're, I'm a little concerned that we're going to start growing too fast and our systems will provide, which will require us to either get that capital or get have, be acquired. But either way, for us on a micro perspective, it's, you know, been okay. I have a question on the on on, on some of the the continuity or some of the the claims on that side, right? Because mm -hmm. you know what what was very low played was it? I think it was the two when they when they did the tax reform act. One of the things they took out of that was the ability for the reinsurance companies to have cash collateral, right? Mm -hmm. And so, is there going to be an impact on the you know from a reinsurance perspective in any of this? Because those reinsurance companies you know, all went to having not to have to have that much cash on their books anymore from the collateral. They didn't have to provide the evidence of the yeah. cash collateral. I mean, we've been in, so I've been in this industry since 1982 and I've gone through all the hard market cycles. We haven't had a hard market in 20 years. And I think Kelly on the last call was talking about how even before the coronavirus, we were starting to hit for the first time in 20 years, a hard market. What that means is for the last 20 years, capital has been fungible, right? And so the whole industry has been changing on how are the insurance companies actually making money? And for the most part, they've been using their balance sheets to cover um, losses and there's all sorts of other services out there. So your point is absolutely correct. When you're in a soft market, that means it's all the way through. So insurance companies are saying, well, why should we take the risk when we can buy reinsurance for really cheap. So it's one big debacle if the insurance companies are gonna to have to step up to the plate and pay for the business interruption. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, I, there's not enough premium in the world to cover it. The, the whole reinsurance area of when that changed, that collateral, I mean, you know, I don't, unless you're in the world or you're paying attention to it, I don't think most people realize that even happened. Correct. Right. Correct. It, it, so that's why I'm watching to see, you know, what the government's going to do. Is there going to be a bailout? How the litigation is going to take place? In my mind, it's kind of like a too big to fail. <clears throat> it's not one company. It's the insurance industry in general. If the insurance industry is forced to pay these claims, even though exclusions exist, they can't do it. Right. It, it, there just isn't enough money. All the One comment I would... In Bermuda, what, are they getting... I didn't look at Bermuda. Are they being impacted? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, I mean, it, it's just... It hasn't hit yet. It's just right. something to watch. Right, exactly. Because right now, the insurance companies are holding tight and saying, if you've got a virus exclusion, it's just not covered. End of story. But there's going to be huge litigation over this. One comment I wanted to make too, I think there was a question around, a question around whether or not this is a, a good time to go to market for an early stage company uh, to raise more capital. 
I think um, just from speaking with some other uh, venture capital firms and uh, just talking more internally, I think I agree with the, the comment earlier about uh, some of the early stage venture firms feeling the punch in the face init uh, initially, uh, everyone kind of gathering around. And I think the initial uh, reaction was to uh, look at portfolio companies. I think this, can, can everyone move, uh, mute, please? I, I think there was um, the, the initial gut reaction was uh, to uh, look internally, look at their portfolio companies and figure out exactly which companies um, need some more support, need some more capital, need to think about raising maybe a bridge round or um, try to jumpstart a, a new round uh, of capital to make sure that they can get through uh, however long this period is going to be. Um, but I also think uh, from the opposite perspective, from the investor's perspective, I think what we have heard in the market is that uh, you know, there's been a lot of capital in the market. I think valuations has, have been a little bit higher uh, than a lot of the firms have um, kind of been looking for. Uh, but I think, you know, once the firms feel comfortable with their current portfolio, and uh, I think kind of the next steps or what I, what I view as, as the next steps for a lot of these investors uh, is to go into the market and start thinking about uh, different companies, different opportunities um, that maybe they've been interested in that have not been at uh, a price that they've been interested at, but maybe reaching out and seeing if there's any extra uh, capital or any ways uh, that they can work with them um, in times like this. So I, I do think there's opportunities here. I think it may uh, take a little bit for companies to initially look at their portfolios and figure out uh, where to spend a lot of their time and resources. Um, but I think the next step for a lot of these venture firms is to really think about uh, different opportunities, different companies, uh, and even, even different portfolio companies across different investors that they talk with uh, that may need a little bit more runway during times like this. No, those are all good points. And guys, can you guys mute whoever 303 is? Or I don't know who that is. But um, the other thing too, Alex, right, is that I, I've been seeing a lot of insider rounds starting to service um, I've advised a lot of com companies to, hey, take whatever you can right now. Um, it'll be interesting to see you know, how those are structured, and I'd welcome yours and Joe's input on this. Uh, one specific specifically I'm working with, they're not looking to price the round. They're actually looking to do like a convertible note um, and kind of table the valuation because I guess it takes that whole uncertainty off the table. And, you know, if they misprice that as part of a preferred offering, you know, there could be more price to pay down the road if there's a down round. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I would say it, it obviously depends company by company. I think depending on, uh, you know, their burn rates, how much cash they have in the bank, uh, their business model, and how much they're affected by the current situation. I, I would agree with your comments. I think a lot of the companies are, are just looking to get cash in the door uh, and just continue to move forward uh, and provide any extra cushion that they can to make sure that they're going to be okay. Um, but I would say for some of the more well-capitalized companies, um, you know, I think for them right now, or at least from what I've heard from them is, um, you know, let's, let's kind of focus on operations today. Like I said, think about uh, uh, some interesting strategic ways to, um, you know, capture more business and increase the revenues during times like this, uh, maybe hold down on the expenses a little bit more. Um, but I think, like you said, a lot of the companies are, are really out there knocking on doors, using this as a way to get new fresh capital in uh, by, any by any means possible. Yeah, and, and it's funny, a lot of these uh, startups, too, are having to redo a lot of their contracts 
And to Judy's point earlier, look, one of the biggest things still not known is this is is this covered under force majeure? And you know, how do we do exclusionary clauses for things like viruses if if it's not? Um, so there's a lot of rework. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of wind down and bankruptcy um, work that's coming from this. Uh, we heard last week that M&A is actually bubbling a lot for the companies that were already kind of in flight doing this process. On the new side, it's a little bit tougher just because there's not the ability to do site visits and things like that uh, as part of the due diligence process. Uh, but it's very much a buying opportunity. Uh, and I guess we'll see how this kind of shakes out. I think Mike Lear just joined. I'd be curious to get some thoughts on if if he did, you know, what is he seeing kind of from the LP perspective and people that are actually out trying to raise funds or what what they're telling their GPs to do? Hi, uh, this is Mike. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I know from my conversations with LPs and investors, really they're just, they're been in shock over the last two weeks. So conversations have many times been less financial and more just about feeling safe and feeling connected. I mean, even having conversations with people about how to best manage having online communication such as this, I mean, that's been helpful for a bunch of people. Um, so I don't know how, if it's particularly instructive, but I, I, my sense is that once things in the next couple of weeks, as we get more clarity, I think clients will be more willing to have those conversations about next steps like I've had a couple of clients that were in a situation where they just chose to go all cash just to give you, <laughs> to give you some perspective on the, on the depth of what clients are feeling. Uh, so that particular couple decided to go all cash. So now we've got to, you know, have conversations about when we, when we start putting that back to work. And as I imagine it right now, um, for folks like that who have taken those extreme steps, that it's going to be, you know, a month or two before they come out of the woodwork and, and start being more um, open to putting capital work. Any certain asset classes? I mean, are they trading heavily or what's kind of their take on public versus alternative uh, ratio weighting? Well, the good news is, um, and you know, this could be instructive going forward, is that for those folks who are in, in investing in alternatives, they had no choice but to stay with their allocation. And, and perhaps <laughs> in some cases, that's actually a, a better situation for them to be in. So removing that, um, that, that lever to pull I think is, is actually benefiting clients that are invested in alternatives in a lot of cases because you've hired that manager um, because they have some skill on the hedge fund side and stock selection or an asset selection and on the private equity side in terms of uh, selecting companies. So you've hired those managers to do what they think is best. And I think in this case, you're gonna see some, um, it's at the extremes, you're gonna see some significantly undervalued companies that are gonna be uh, bought uh, over this time. So with that being the backdrop, I, I think when people are ready to put it back to work, that's part of the conversation I'll be having with them is like, look, maybe you should think about putting more in alternatives. So next time the world comes crashing down, you know, you are a, you're already positioned well for it. And, and a lot of my clients already are, but for those that are not, um, that's part of the conversation I'll be having. And uh, any thoughts on what's going on in the secondary market? I don't, I don't have optics in the secondary market right now. 
Uh, I suspect we'll probably see some more data in April, um, but a lot of that's already delayed. And I hadn't seen a lot of appetite for secondary transactions, at least from where I sit. Mm -hmm. Sounds like most people are holding steady in that, in that area. Yeah. yeah and, go ahead. I was going to mention one quick comment. I didn't read it closely, but I did see a, a newsletter talking about how the secondary market was uh, at a near standstill. Not a lot of action going on right now. And they were um, creating some new, some new methods to, to kind of increase the engagement there and get people um, to be more active. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really, I mean, it's really, really tough to get clients act when everything's happened so quickly. Um, so in, you know, in 2000, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the data, but if you haven't, um, in 2008, 2009, when we had that crash, that happened, the bear market was over, we reached that over six months and this time it was 18 days. So when you're seeing that kind of velocity and then on top of it, you now have the liquidity situations, uh, within fixed income, we still believe a lot of fixed income is going to be money, good contracts. Um, but we're just seeing a lot of liquidity issues. Um, and the, the widening of the bid ask spread. So, all that is to say, things are a, a little bit confusing for uh, for a lot of folks right now, and it, it makes sense that people want to take a breather. Yep. Hmm. Trying to think if there's anything else we should cover on this, but I, I think that was huge insight. I'm glad you were able to chime in. I know you uh, were hung up for a little bit. Um. Anything else on the startup side that uh, you guys wanted to cover, or at least on the portfolio side in relating to SBA loans? I know there's a bit of a queue for right, that right now. Um, the latest intel I got is that uh, employees and 1099s actually will count towards your um, calculation, whatever that might be. I think the approval process is going to be done extremely quickly, probably in a matter of minutes, just like Pam was saying for a lot of the current documentation. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has some insight there, but that's kind of the latest that I know. Shane, you're correct on that. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. No, I was just saying that, yeah, um, Dr. Kelly gave a call about updating all that stuff as well, but yeah, 1099 employees, self-employed, subcontractors, all of that. The other part was the increase in how much the unemployment benefit's going to be. Um, have you heard that? Like where it's going to be an extra $600 uh, on top of the Correct. typical unemployment benefit. And that's huge for people in the Midwest. This is going to be a time where they might actually get paid more unemployed than working, which to me is scary because <laughs> that could balloon unemployment numbers because people will prefer to be unemployed. Legitimately. Of course. I spoke to two yeah. of the banks this morning that I bank with on the SBA. They were they were going through the process of what they're gonna do. So they have not been ignited to start, you know, I can't show up Monday morning, for instance, right? But they've got a queue now and they're taking names of people that are calling in. So, you know, and I've got one that's a smaller bank and one that's a larger bank. Um, but one of the, you know, a couple of the community banks even in town are looking at what that process is in lending at that level. 
um, and said that they believe that the process, once they get the approval on it, you know, it'll be like opening your checking account. And that goes back to my comment earlier, which is, you know, if you think about the amount of information that banks take for anything or any kind of restructure and what that documentation is required to be and how long that process usually takes, you're going to take a, a four week or a six week process and accelerate it into two hours. I mean, um, and basically the information that they told me they needed was not a whole lot more than opening a checking account, but they wanted what they, that what they would require is evidence of the people, mm -hmm. the 1099s. Um, and the fact that you're going to put the money to work for compensation. Yep. Anybody got any interesting regional perspectives that they'd want to share real quick before we kind of wrap up? Yeah, I'll give you, this is Judy again, the Denver market. So I've been commuting between Denver and New York since 1989. <laughs> 2008, you're in New York and it was doom and gloom. Like I just had to get out of there. Came back to Denver. Everybody's like, wow, wow. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a little tough. Same thing here. Like I'm, I'm talking to the um, real estate people and I'm like, well, there's gotta be a correction coming. And they're like, no, you know, Denver's like a different economy than everywhere else. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you looking at what's going on in the rest of the world? So I would just say, if you're kind of out of New York and if you're different parts of the country, I don't know what it feels like in California, but I think there's a lot of people just not grasping the potential economic effect of what we have going on here. So I find that really interesting. Um, uh, we have clients, not only are they family offices and trustees, so there's lawyers, we also work with financial institutions. So, you know, I'm hearing at least here, in terms of the lending environment, it is a, and again, our business is the community banks and trust companies opposed to the large banks. It is a company by company analysis. So that's all kind of interesting. So that's what I would kind of add. It depends on where you are in the country in terms of the morale, not the impact. I absolutely agree. Um, one good thing, Shane, you might want to know from your hometown is that uh, Primex Plastics, which is also in New Jersey, uh, is actually making plastic face masks. They've reapportioned re their uh, assembly line to do that. So that's happening here locally. And I know that uh, other manufacturers are doing the same type of thing. No, that's interesting to know. Yep. Well, I, I think a lot of things coming out of this, at least from a community or impact level, and we talked a little bit on Wednesday, but you know, I think people are going to have to really find ways to bring business back here and manufacture things as locally as possible. Uh, to create jobs because I, I don't I don't know how much of this uh, stimulus will cover that shortage of workers and Sam I don't know if you have anything to add to that but you know some of the stuff that we're doing at Forever Karma um, what we're trying to do and we're, we're actually looking for a couple of corporate partners on this but essentially we have a lot of uh, what we call economies in a box or businesses in a box but 
to take those to displaced workers, community to community, and let them run these businesses, almost like a Mary Kay model, especially women, um, as given that this is a women empowerment brand, but um, you know, taking certain businesses that either cater to corporations, events, weddings, as things of course reemerge, fitness, uh, lifestyle, and allow them to make and sell these products directly in their community. And look, it's gonna be a lot of up to the community to buy these products, but I think with this uh, comes an opportunity to educate people on where products are normally sourced or what you know, supply chains are relied on, um, but how to, how to source and buy products differently that actually can have an impact on your own community. Shane, I'm going to add two things on that on that comment. One regarding the masks. So my my husband's in the wholesale business, as I mentioned, is selling into to, to big box retailers of the TJ Maxx of the world, right? Um, and he has gotten calls this week every day with the ability to buy masks, right? With the specs, with 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 everything, FDA approval, and all this type of stuff. And I think from the retail end, right? you know, whether that's a CVS or whether that's a Walmart, whatever the retailers are for humans like us that may want to buy a mask, right? It, it, we were kind of researching to say, why wouldn't they do it? And I think, be, and, and we also took one of those to New Jersey, but I think that anyone trying to retail or prosper on, on, on that, those types of things from a retail perspective is the retailers are holding back on it because they don't see the hospital workers getting them and they don't see people that, you know, in the, in the fire that are getting them. So I think that was one thing changing to a completely separate thing from those communities or what people need. Um, used gym equipment has disappeared, <laughs> right? Yep. There's, um, you know, we were looking at it and I knew a guy in town, he did all my friends gyms, right? He was a gym guy, right? But the ability to get any access to weights to use gym equipment and all that stuff is actually at a low. And I was thinking, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, right? You know, all these gyms are shut down, right? If all these gyms started selling or use gym furniture, they get some cash, who knows when they're going to open. And then they, they reconstitute new equipment when they open. Yeah, I mean, I was one of them. I went and I, I purchased, I probably spent $1,500 in fitness in the last week getting new running shoes, uh, bought a set of Bowflex select tech dumbbells that, you know, go up to like a hundred pounds of a bench, all the stuff I didn't have, but I know that, you know, these, uh, gyms are going to be shut down and imagine there's a feeding frenzy on all this stuff too. It is. Yeah. I don't, is yeah. There, you guys know Peloton has actually turned around. Yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting mine delivered today. Do you guys know if there's any good public companies in the fitness space? Like, uh, I don't know if, if Nautilus or um, Beachbody are those public entities? Well, you know, the other thing is there's just a general increase in self-reliance, right? People that used to outsource your personal things from fitness to food, everybody's figuring out how to bring that back home right now, you know? Yep. I personally think this is Judy. Um, I, I did the same thing. I got the last set of um, adjustable weights in the city of Denver like two weeks ago and I you know my trainer offered to train me um, virtually I'm like you know what core power is doing a really great job literally I've been addicted to my peloton that was in the gym I'm my husband 
so kindly for Valentine's Day bought me one, but it got delayed delivery and I'm literally getting it today. I think gyms are going to have a really hard time coming back, not because of fear, but because depending how long this is going to take, I am getting used to doing it at home. I don't like it as much. I'd rather go to the gym, but why? You know, so I think the gyms are going to have a really hard time coming back, but the fitness equipment, the virtual training, the really good ones, I think are going to do quite well. I think that's right. I have I have a, a list that, and I can share it with everybody. But I have a list that that we put together here, where we have I think there's somewhere between forty and fifty uh, home workout classes. Some you pay for, some you get free trials, some of all of that. Um, and I think that people are really starting to take to that. So I take your point, and, I, and this is something I've been thinking about also on the gym side. So I think yeah, just speak if you'd love to share that, that'd be great. I can post that out to yeah. you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same camp. I've been doing Zoom uh, cycling classes on my trainer in the morning. Uh, I just did it before this. And I, can, I don't think I need my gym membership anymore. The only thing that stopped me from putting a stop on my payments was that, you know, it was just a way to support the small business guy. And if I do that, I think it'll tumble for sure. Let me, one, thing that I, one thing that I looked up was, you know, I have a daughter who's 21 years old, who's home from college, and she's a bit of a hypochondriac. And so, well, not a bit, she is. And so I'm telling you, you're not going to the doctor for any pain. So I looked up all these teledoc, you know, the teleservices. And now I was researching a company that's called Talkspace. And Talkspace is now, an, you know, Talkspace is doing an online therapy, right? So I think those, those services and this Talkspace is not insurance-based. It's just getting access to therapy, you know, mental health therapy. Yep. Um, but then I looked at a list of all these telehealth companies yesterday because I need to have her be able to talk to somebody on the internet and I really don't need her to pay for that too much. So I've seen all these new telehealth companies come up. You know, and I think that presents two things. One, certainly opportunity, but I started researching, are they, you know, are they certified? I mean, doctors giving advice, like where are they? Are they popping up? Like two more popped up this week. So which ones are actually going through proper telehealth and which ones might be, you know, There'll be lots of opportunity for fraud in this as well. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to say I had my gym all together before this all started, thankfully. Um, but I, th- <laughs> a couple of things re- really resonate with me with people who are bringing up is that there's going to be some opportunities and probably you have to figure out for yourself on the right time is to speak about that. But broadly speaking, there are thematic areas that are going to um, benefit uh, from this. So whether it's uh, some of the healthcare applications people have mentioned, uh, one thing that probably hasn't gotten enough light in the press is that you know China is pretty much coming back online. So there are some opportunities there for those folks that are looking at it, looking for it. But just thinking about some of the some of the more active uh, folks within uh, my book or the folks that we work with are thinking about where those opportunities lie. And it may, might be a worthwhile thought exercise while we, we all have some downtime is to think about what areas might benefit um, currently. Yeah, I think Mike, we're gonna do a, probably a full call on just kind of uh, brainstorming good equity plays here uh, in the public market to take advantage of that. Um, so maybe we can set up a special session so you can get on the online. 
Yeah, co compliance forbids me from from having those conversations in this context. But Got if it. anybody wants to reach out to me directly, I'm happy to have. Cool. Well, one I know that we're we're coming up on the the hour here, but one uh, thing I think and you mentioned it last week, but um, yeah, I, and I and I did some research on it. But tropical storm season is coming upon us, um, and maybe there's something we can talk about on Wednesday, or or if people want to stay on for a little bit longer, but. Tropical storm season is coming on us. I looked, I've been looking into it, and it looks like 2020 is going to be an unprecedented year, with some somewhere in, in the uh, in the realm of uh, four or five what they consider major highlight storms. Um, and the response to those, I would imagine, in a normal year, would absorb a lot of attention uh, and resources. And I wonder what that's going to do as we think about our financial economy at this standpoint. And we think about even just from a U.S. standpoint, what what money has been deployed and what resources have been deployed to uh, support, um, you know, from small business to to large business, all the you know the, the two trillion dollar stimulus and everything and all the and, and all the attention. I wonder what this is going to do, um, you know, kind of to to add to the the stress of the markets as we're currently kind of facing it. Well, it's definitely going to add a lot to it. I mean, we, we talked about what you said last week, but um, look, just because there's a disease going on and a virus spreading doesn't mean that anything that's impacting us from climate change is going to come to a stop, right? So we're literally going to, this is going to be probably one of the toughest years of our existence as, as a human race. Um, and it's already expected, like you said, in many, many areas, not just the storms, but the droughts, the heat waves, um, you know, the strength of these hurricanes. And also, by the way, yesterday I got my first mosquito bite. I was outside right as the sun was starting to set. And I'm like, wow, it's a little early for that. But mm. the amount of disease that also come from that and the, and the insect problem is going to be on the rise because we didn't, we didn't have that cold of a winter to kill off a lot of these things that we normally rely on. Um, so you're going to start seeing a surge in that. If you saw what happened in, I forget what uh, mm. African country, but the locusts have already taken over um, this entire country and they've killed all the agriculture there. So there's going to be more of that. Right. And that's, you know, that's, that's why these things that matter are so important. So from an impact perspective, again, like at least with carbon, like you know, we kind of decided this many years ago that you know, these are things that matter, but you know, a lot of us have been focused on this for decades. Um, it's just now all finally coming to a head. Personally, again, I'll repeat it. I, I think this is going to be one of the best lessons the world's ever learned. Um, but to also take a time to rethink of what's important, uh, how much self-reliance we can have, you know, when we come from a world of abundance too, what we actually need to survive. I've seen uh, kids now setting up uh, little, little baseball nets and stuff that they can hit and swing in, um, stuff I've never seen in 20 years, right? We talked about people playing catch but it's starting to go to the next level already uh, after a week later and people are getting more and more creative. So it's amazing the innovation that comes out of necessity versus abundance. And I think that's, that's something this country will definitely learn very soon. I've played more baseball with my kids this last couple of weeks than I have in the last year. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the way I look at this, like you, you couldn't ask for a better thing for humanity. I mean, to bring awareness on so many fronts, because the only way we honestly listen is when we're faced with this type of distress. Uh, it's unfortunate it comes to that, but I, and, and to Zeke's point, I think we're going to learn the same lesson with climate change here this year as well. 
Um, and I think it's finally going to resonate. I mean, we've already started seeing almost every city, the air pollution has, has gone away, right? And so you can't really say that, you know, man is not producing this anymore. Um, it's also the cleanest I've ever seen it on the streets. Like the amount of litter, like I usually have to pick up if, I, if people dish stuff on the side of the road, I pick it up while I'm walking my dog. But um, I've actually never seen it so clean in so many different parts because we're just not out there. Um, but you're starting to see these amazing environmental impacts as well uh, because of the lack of human activity. So with that, uh, I guess we'll have a call next Wednesday. I'll try to see if there's any other angles. I'd love to get some real estate perspectives on, um, see if I can line that up. If you guys have any requests of areas that you'd like to cover, maybe even on healthcare and mental health, I can try to set that up as well. Um, but just shoot me some, um, some, some thoughts and uh, I'll try to see what I can do to pull that together. I would agree on the mental health side, Shane, because this is what triggers, you know, I mean, we already have an opiate crisis going on in the healthcare system, right? Um, and events like this, I mean, the line outside the liquor store is, is, is longer than the line outside of Costco. So, you know, and I was at Costco the other day and I looked at what was in the cart and it was, it was, it was fascinating, right? Because you can only buy one thing, a toilet paper, right? Diapers, lots of diapers, booze, right? And then, and the paper supplies, it was just, you know, you, they took the one thing, a toilet paper, they took the one thing of water. But the two other abundant things in each carts were diapers and booze. Yep. And so the mental health aspect of this on many levels, not just from addiction and not just from other things, but um, it, I think it's something that needs to be, and you, I do a lot of work in that area, Shane knows, but um, I think there's a lot there that needs, we, we, if we don't get in front of it, it can be pretty bad. Yep. I understand the lines at the cannabis stores uh, in several states have been several blocks long as well. Well, I said to somebody the other day, I said, this, this, it may not be at the federal level, right? But this likely will be the cannabis legalization in all the states because they're going to need the tax dollars. Yep. Right? So I've got somebody we've been working on the pay, a payments, a blockchain payment system around cannabis. So I don't, I, don't think the, I don't think it'll be legalized at a federal level, which still makes the opportunities of how you move that cash, right? Because so much cash was lost in the fires in California. It was all buried over there, right? So through the, there's some people working on blockchain technology around it, but I think it'll legalize it in all states because that'll be the first accelerator to cash back to the states. Yep. Yeah, I'll set up a special session just on mental health and I'll see who we can line up. Pam, it'd be great to have you on there and a couple of your um, colleagues as well. And then I'll get this gentleman from uh, post-acute recovery and I'll get my buddy from Columbia Medical on the psychology side. So um, this will be great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I think we covered a lot. I'm going to be posting some of these findings, I guess, maybe on our blog or something on our website. So if anybody wants to recoup some of those notes. And then again, if you guys have any other ideas, just uh, shoot me uh, shoot me an email or a text. Thank you, Shane. Hey, Eric, I just saw your note there. I'll tell you, my son's 17 years old and he delivers food. And just, you know, a week ago in like four hours, he came home with $45 in tips. Nice. A week later, he came home with $240 in tips for the same shift. Wow. Wow. He's 17 years old. We make more money than any of us in the house right now. But, um, and he, he <laughs> no interaction. He's got, he just drops it off at the door. Yeah. Right. 
But what I will tell you from a social aspect perspective, you know, they're saying, please tip these people like you would tip the, um, the waiter or the waitress. Yep. People are doing that. So that's good. That is good. Good stuff. Well, thanks. Hopefully you guys finding these useful and uh, we'll, we'll keep trying to improve as we go along. Thanks, everybody. Nice to meet everyone. Yeah, nice to meet you all. Thank you. Nice to meet you all. Thank you, Shane. Hey,